Hello, I'm Frank Turner. Welcome to Tales from No Man's Land, a podcast that accompanies my album, No Man's Land. It's about 13 women from history who you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have. Their stories are fascinating, moving, funny, and most importantly, worth celebrating and sharing. Welcome back to Tales from No Man's Land. I'm sad to say that this is the final episode in the series. Um, I hope you've enjoyed it. If this is the first one you're listening to, you can go back and listen to the other episodes at your leisure. But we are finishing with a bang, ladies and gentlemen. It's the last song on the album. It's something of an odd one out as far as the record goes because the subject is not a historical female figure yet, I should say, because I wrote a song about my mum, whose name is Rosemary Jane. Rosemary Jane was the first out of bed every morning the same But there's mouths to be fed With the money she gets From a man who is dead to himself And dead to everyone else when we were coming up with the whole concept for the podcast, there's obviously only one person who I could interview for a song about my mum, that of course being my mum. And I didn't know whether she was going to say yes to doing it, and if she did, how it would go, and how we would phrase it, and all this kind of thing. It's quite a deep and personal song. But in the end, I called her, she said that she was happy to be interviewed, so we sat around the kitchen table, we got the microphones out, and we had a chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. So, this is me and my mum. Welcome back to Tales from No Man's Land, and today's very special podcast episode is being recorded in a kitchen in the South Downs, uh, in a little village, and it is the kitchen table of my mum. And obviously there's a song on the album about my mum, Rosemary Jane, or Jane, so obviously we've been getting historians and people like that in, and I, there's nobody else I could get on the podcast for this one other than my mum. But I'm a bit nervous, I'll be honest with you, not least because as we sit across the table, my mother has a sheet that I can read from here that says, Questions for Francis, which opens the first can of worms, which is that I was christened in 1981 by my mother as Francis. So welcome to the show, Mum. Hi. How are you today? I'm equally nervous. I'm hot. Uh, it's extremely I mean, it's hot. It's extremely yeah. hot. It's lovely to have you here. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I do that typical thing of not coming home as often as I should. And today I've come home with podcasting equipment. So I'm not sure if this counts as a visit. I think it does. He's had his favourite lunch, macaroni, cheese and Viennetta. Being <laughs> <laughs> sold down the river already. But here we are. And, and so I've made this new album, which I sent you a copy of. I've been listening to it day and night and in the car. And you've made for, notes. And I've made lots of notes. It's probably worth it's, saying at this point that your professional career, you were a primary school teacher. I was a primary school teacher for 39 years. 39 I taught years. you. You did, yes. And your siblings. Yes, you taught, taught me how to play you recorder. to play the recorder. I didn't teach Joanna, your older sister, very much, but Jilly, your younger sister, I taught for three years. Yes, thing. so we, we're all um, marked by the experience of having your mum as a teacher. Uh, but so these are, they look like teaching plans that you have in front of you. Of course they are. It's very organised. It, they've got boxes and lists and notes and everything. And you've been texting me questions and sort of, I feel like I'm the lesser prepared of the two people sat at this table right now. I don't think so because you've got ownership of the songs. I've just been listening. This is and- true. So, so the new album, No Man's Land, was as people listening to this should hopefully by now know is is my sort of history record that I've ended up writing about historical women. And I was wondering your thoughts on the project as a whole. 
Well, I was intrigued because how did you choose the women that you chose? I've been trying to categorise them and put them into boxes and say, well, he's got three of these and three of these and three of these. But yeah. um, how did you choose the women? Well, it was chose? the primary motivation was actually storytelling. I didn't set out to write just about women. I've written a lot of songs and records about me and the, my affairs of my heart, as you know. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to write about other things. And the first song that I wrote, which is the first song on the record, uh, which we can talk about now, if you like, was uh, the song Ginny Bingham's Ghost, which is track one on the album. I wanted to write a song about Camden because I love Camden. And I'm sure you can remember me and Chris Blake getting the train from... I, I think you spent a lot of your life that I don't know very much about... In Camden. In Camden. Yeah, you but... Cer- I, certainly mentioned it. I remember, I remember being like 14, me and Chris got the train up to London and went to Camden and bought some green hairspray. <gasps> And a pair of brothel creepers. You remember them? Yes, I do. Yeah. Black. Black with enormous soles, which, given my height, I really didn't need. No, you didn't. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, I'm a South Londoner. Camden was a place full of markets and yeah. crowds. And, and punks. And punks. Yeah, yeah which absolutely. is why I wanted to go there. Anyway, I wasn't at all surprised that you wrote about Camden. Well, so this is it. I wanted to write a song about Camden. And um, in the World's End pub, which is there, which is the site of Ginny Bingham's coaching house. Is that the pub that you spend a lot of time uh, in? It, it's certainly it's next door to a venue called The Underworld, which is where A Million Dead played lots and where I've played and I've been to a million shows there. So, And, and it's on the site of Ginny Bingham's coaching house. And so I wanted to write a song about Camden and they have a plaque in their doorway that explains... Uh, the story of Ginny Bingham. So I ended up telling a story about Ginny Bingham, who's from Camden. After I had a collection of, uh, together, the theme became apparent. Um, but the initial idea was just to tell stories. Well, one of my questions was that I seem to be amongst some pretty questionable characters. <laughs> and I'm not sure whether I'm complimented. We've got murderesses. Ginny mm. Bingham was thought to have been a witch. Well, she was accused of being a witch. She wasn't really a witch. Well, this, this is what she... She was poisoning people. Well, she might happily. have been. So we made a podcast episode about this in, in Camden, and it was fascinating because I learned that um, as somebody running a bar, she would have also been kind of an apothecary, um, a local medicine person, and that meant that there was a lot of suspicion in sort of pre-scientific medicine about somebody who administered herbs that went into the body and affected them. So it's not entirely clear whether or not she poisoned anybody. One of her husbands was found dead in her oven. In her oven? In her oven. She burnt him? People said that she had famous towering rages and he was hiding from one of her strops and accidentally hid in the oven and got burned, which sounds pretty unlikely. And what about the poison? Well, I mean, I put that in the song because it sounds good. She's accused of it, but it's, it's not at all certain. And what I want to know is whether you've seen her ghost. I've not, no, although they, when we were in the Underworld, which is the basement venue down there, um, recording the song, the historian we have with us was telling me that it's a haunted place. And you've said that in the song as well. Yeah. yeah and I just wondered, you've spent so much time up there, I wonder whether actually <laughs> in a sort of desperate early morning drunken state well, you'd, you'd well, seen the ghost. I have been in the Underworld until 5am in the past. But That's a story appear. that I'm not telling you in more detail no. right now. Um, but uh, I haven't seen a ghost while I've been there. Okay. Talking about that particular song, there was one moment when you've got a lovely violin yes. sort of descant in the background. Yeah. Was that Emily playing? No, that's actually that's Anna Jenkins. You've met Anna a few times. She's played Phil with us um, many times in the past. Well, it was um, very effective accompaniment to that song. It was yeah. lovely. Really, I'd love to take really credit lovely. for the solo, but yeah. she just ripped it out. Well, it was very effective, actually. Yes. So that is track number one. From the track album. number one. Should we move on? I yes. mean, I think we can Quickly. talk about broad themes as we go yes. as well. Yes. So the second song is Sister Rosetta. Oh, I love this one. 
Okay. And, and I've listened to the podcast. I've been very good and I've done I've listened to the podcast I so just, far. I, I've also told you how to subscribe to the podcast today. Oh, I've had a lot of IT lessons. Yeah. We've discovered Spotify today as well. Don't make me sound okay. too right. ancient. <laughs> anyway, so Sister Rosetta. Have you ever heard of Sister Rosetta Thorpe? No. Do you now know lots about her from this? I podcast? know lots about her and I actually was rather intrigued. She was from an American slave and Baptist. Yeah. Upbringing. Yeah, well, so, she was born in 1918, so she's after Reconstruction, that kind of thing. So uh, possibly her grandparents might have been slaves, I'd say. Right, but still that very, very strong Baptist oh, yeah, faith, yeah. evangelical. P- uh, Pentecostal. Um, Pentecostal, um, yeah. yes. Bible-thumping. Holy, holy rollers, as holy they were rollers. And what surprised me was that her mother went with her on the yeah. on tour, and a Bible-thumping mother were Sister Rosetta's songs on biblical themes. Yeah, generally speaking, yes, she was a religious person. Because you I mean, said her eyes... She always rolled. When she performed, she did this very Pentecostal thing because, of rolling her Is that back. because she was immersed in what yeah, she was Yeah, I mean, it's it's very close to speaking in tongues. And and there is an argument to be made that the way that she played guitar is actually drawn from the practice of speaking in tongues and that it's very raw and sort of vocal. And that is the basis of kind of rock and roll guitar styling. And that's kind of where it comes from. I think I mentioned in the podcast episode when I was chatting to Wacker in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that um, I was raised in the Church of England by you and my grandfather. Because your grandfather was a bishop, so he you actually was. didn't have much chance of escape. Yeah. And, but right. you weren't Bible-bashed. I wasn't Bible-bashed. Well, the Church of England's quite sort of... Um, Laid back. ...sedate compared to the Holy Rollers. So that was, that was the thing. I mean, you know, I was raised in a religious household, um, but you didn't take me on tour. <laughs> oh, I didn't go on tour with... No, I know, I know, I know. You play in church sometimes? I'm an organist. And yeah. Uh, I do. You play I, on Christmas Day. I played on Christmas Day and I play quite, I play about 10 times a year here. It's great fun. Right. Great fun. Make a lot of noise with noise. Excellent. And it's is good. any of your musicianship influenced by Sister Rosetta Tharp? I rather doubt it, I'm afraid. No, this, here's a comment about um, this one. You did a podcast about Sister Rosetta. You interviewed yep. a couple of people. You talked about her music endlessly and in great detail. And she only died in 1973. Why didn't you play any of her music? Um, kind of legal reasons, I suspect. We, you have to license the music. Okay. Um, and the other thing is I, I haven't to date recorded any covers of her songs, but that's because I feel like, and this is true of an awful lot of early rock and roll music, is that it's all about the performance and the interpretation. You know, a lot of the kind of chord changes and structures are pretty kind of basic. It's a 12-bar um, blues pattern where you go first chord, fourth chord, first chord, fifth chord, fourth chord, first chord. You know, so that it's not musically breaking boundaries. What she broke boundaries was with her performance, her interpretation of the material, the fact that it was played with such kind of vim and gusto. And she only had one leg. Towards the end of her life, yes. That, I think, is absolutely amazing. Rock, yeah. rock and roll with one leg, I thought, was impressive. OK, well, I'm, I could hop, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> So the next song and the next person to talk about is I Believed You, William Blake. I remember kind of reading Tiger and stuff like that when I was a kid in school poetry books and that kind of thing. Yes. Are you a William Blake fan? No, not particularly. I think his art was slightly weird. Yeah, very um, weird. Very weird. But as his life went on, he it was very humdrum. He'd just chat to angels who were there. Well, he was writing a poem. Or, or, or indeed hang painting. out with his wife and not talk to her. 
kind of thing. So she's, or you say in the words of the song, that she's asking him to look after her. Yeah. She felt slightly abandoned and second to... Well, he he died before she did, and I just had this thought, because his theology was so wild and weird, and the only person who ever seems to have really fully understood it was her. Um, And she definitely kind of followed him and backed him up and all of this. And then he died, and I sort of had this thought that she might have stood by the graveside and had a moment of extreme doubt. That he was genuine or... Or, Yeah, that that he hadn't been mad, essentially. She herself was an illiterate, wasn't she? When they met, yeah. He he taught taught her, her to write. Yeah. But he also taught her to engrave. Yes, and, right? and yes, absolutely. And she helped him with his um, screen printing of, of his engravings and that kind of thing. So she was useful to him. Yeah, and she also, after he died, he would have been completely forgotten, essentially, if it wasn't for her work in organising and cataloguing his art. I didn't realise that. So yeah. uh, when I was doing my homework, I see that there was a window has been put up to her. Yes. In Battersea, but yeah. not until 200 years after yeah. she had died. So who? why has that come about? I think that there's a general kind of sense that people are trying to kind of recognise more broadly the kind of the female characters who slightly get overshadowed by their husbands or, or male partners or whatever you like. Can I see work that she's done in her own right? You her can see work? there are folios of prints that she did of William Blake's work that she did after he died. She sort of repressed some stuff. So but did she have original work? I don't think so. She was his She was kind trained of, as a sort of artist, studio assistant. Really. Amanusis. Yes, I use that word. word. There we go. That's a nice oh, word. That's a really good word. Yeah. In the music of that one, yeah, I I like the you get a there's a big sound in it, a lot of cellos and yeah. and sort of brass and orchestral. But is that all done? That's all electronic music. Or no, no, no. It's all. Did you have a cellist? We had a cellist. We had the wonderful Joe Silverstone, who again was in Emily's band. So you've probably met her over probably. the years. Um, there was a moment in time. I'm not sure I've said this on the podcast yet. Where originally, so Emily Barker used to play with a band called the Red Clay Halo, which was Jill Sandel, Joe Silverstone, and Anna Jenkins. And there was a moment during the evolution of this project where the idea was that I was going to do a record that was called Frank Turner and the Red Clay Halo. And it would just be those three playing all the arrangements and it would be a very sort of folk uh, record in the way that Emily's music she made with them was. That didn't quite work out, but all three of them have played on the album. And would- that, that end part, funnily enough, that is a riff and a set of music that I wrote for Million Dead. All those years ago, and indeed, really? I remember. It doesn't sound very Million Deady. Well, it's got a. It's you got can a big... tell I'm not a huge fan of that type of. <laughs> I mean, certainly when I started hardcore. playing solo music, you were, we could have more meaningful conversations about the music that I make. I've just had a wonderful memory. I can remember taking you back to school and you saying, "Mum, can I put a heavy metal CD?" On it would have been a cassette. I would have thought. This, all right, on in the car. Yeah. And I can remember my answer was that it's like sitting in a tin sandwich box. And if it was going to damage my head, no. It was Iron but Maiden, I remember. It was Iron Maiden. You're quite right. I used yeah. to find that quite difficult. Anyway, those the cellos in that, yeah. I believe you, William Wake, actually sounded fabulous. Was there any brass as well? Not on that one. There is, is it brass. just the depth of that cello? Sound? Yeah, well, there's a lot Lovely. of electric guitars on there, which kind of add a lot of that kind of um, depth and sound to it. But I, it's, I, I wanted the end of that song to be heavy. Um, and it was. You know, yeah. Yeah, in, no, no, not it was, quite like Iron Maiden, but not far It was off. really good. It's rather sad to think that she signed her marriage certificate with a just with a cross. With an X, was, yeah. With an X, well, the, the, which apparently you can still see the certificate somewhere. Oh, really? I haven't seen that. See, we're learning now on the podcast. I, I didn't if know you, this. I think if you go to St Mary's Church, Battersea, the original wedding certificate can be viewed. Apparently, um, apparently yeah. they were engaged to be married within about 45 minutes having met. Well, he said... He, he sort of burst Do you tears. pity me? Yes. He said, and she said, yes, so he said, then will you marry me? It's 
quite a pickup line. I'm not sure. <laughs> if that, not, not I'm sure not sure that works it. these days. No, I don't think it would. Yeah, <laughs> I absolutely don't. Yeah. Um, well, talking of brass, so moving on to the next song on the record is Nika, uh, which is uh, about Nika Rothschild. I, yeah, I found her story sort of difficult to... Well, I mean, she was, well, a, this, she was a rich girl. But, this is, she but was this, a, this is an interesting moment in the sense that, like, the thing that... I'm not, <laughs> we're not Rothschilds. Um, but, like, but, you know, she, she ditched her family. She actually... She fought with the Free French in the war. Um, and then she was married. She had kids. And then, legend has it, she was flying home from America and had a stopover in New York and heard Thelonious Monk in a bar and pretty much instantly, she'd never heard any music like it before. She'd been brought up in a very... And she was caught. She, uh, and she just went, that's me, that's my life, that's the sound I've And so before. she stayed there? She stayed there, divorced it, her husband. She had sort of, what do you call them, sort of soirees, did she? Did she invite uh, she, musicians into she did, her um, She put them up flat. when they were looking for places to live. She took the rap for drug possession charges for quite a few of them. She was known as the only white woman in Harlem. Um, she had a Bentley, was one of the few things that she kept from her former life. And she had, she always carried a Bible on her. And the Bible was hollowed out to hold a whiskey bottle um, uh, or oh, whiskey like hip flask. And her great line, which I put in the song, is throw your heart over the fence and the rest will follow. Very brave. Well, but I mean, Very... there are many, many, many differences between our life stories. But like, I mean, I kind of ran away and joined the circus when I was a kid. Yeah. Or at least I went and started touring when I was 16. So Yeah, yeah, in a, in, in a way. So she, she was a sort of patron, really, was she? she yes, to, she was, yeah. To, 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 to the New, New York Heavens, She certainly had plenty of money to be a patron. Well, not that she? much, actually. Well, sure, she was a Rothschild. She, yeah, she got very cut off by the family. Oh. I mean, they sort of bought her a flat and then went... Off you go. Yeah, because she was seen as shaming the family name. Um, and for this one, in the studio, we had a West End brass section come in. And oh. this is the thing we can talk about, actually. So I still can't really read and write music. And I know you can, you can sight read, right? I've spent my life reading, not writing, but reading music. In fact, I can sight read, but I'm not good at playing by ear. I can't write by you. So, because I'm, I'm kind of the opposite. And you're the other way around. Um, but there was a moment when we had the um, uh, brass players in the studio for this song, um, because I'd essentially written out the chord charts for them and I didn't have specific parts. I said I just wanted it to feel like a club in 1950 in Harlem wrote them out the chord charts and then we sort of rolled the tape and I was I'd sort of written a bit of a graph that was like you know some here more here solo here down here up here kind of thing and uh, and we just rolled tape and they just absolutely smashed it out of the park on the first take because and Catherine the producer and I stood in the booth looking at each other whispering real musicians real musicians and they improvised yeah all, all I mean they just got the just sound in their heads and, and they, they, they I'd sent them a demo of the song so yeah. they knew how it went but they were just they were, I don't think anybody hit a bum note at any point it was just all that is impressive to hear. Yeah. It's, it's it's fantastic. That's the type of musicianship because I, I think that's arguably a third type of musicianship. After because I play by ear, but I don't really improvise all that much. And then you read, but these are people who just improvise. But people who play by ear can improvise because, of course, you've got the sound in your head and they sure. can take it on. Yeah, I'm terrible but, at playing guitar solos. Guitar solos. Yeah, rubbish. Right. But. <laughs> I just, I, well, we'll get to it. There's one on this album. Yeah, yeah you, you do play lots. You imply that you've not been taught about music theory. You got your oh, yeah. piano grade two. I did. You got your harp grade two. I did. This no, is... grade one on oh, harp, sorry. thank you very much. Grade one harp. Brilliant. Can we just talk about the harp thing for a minute? Because otherwise that's going to hang in the room here as being weird. I, I can't quite remember what it was, but there was a harp at school and I was sort of being encouraged to play something else. And this is pre-Iron Maiden, which is the great dividing point in my you life. You were nine? Yeah. You told me that the music master said, boys, 
put your hand up if you'd like to learn to play the harp. And you said you'd like to play the harp. Now, that's fine, playing a harp. If you play a violin, you put it in a small case and take it home for yeah. half term. The next thing that happened was you said you wanted to bring the harp home for half term yeah. to practice. Yeah. We lifted it. If you hold a harp horizontally all the, the wrong tu- way up... All the tuning pegs fall all out. All of the tuning pegs yeah. fall out, and they fell out on a gravel drive... It was oh, yeah, not I've a very good moment. That, yeah. I also <laughs> remember that part of the reason I didn't go any further with it was that we looked into how much buying a harp would be and it was like more than a new car. Absolute fortune. Yeah, so that was the end but of my But I have got a beautiful career. photograph of you with those... Which the your... internet will never see. <laughs> and you hold your hands in a very it's elegant like, and yeah. fluid position and yeah, you, yeah. you look marvellous. I can't remember how to play it at all. But uh, this is a story I've told elsewhere, but it's worth telling with you here. Miss Tritton told me after I scraped through... She was your piano teacher. My piano teacher. Um, she told me after I scraped through grade two that well, music wasn't really for me and I should do something else. I love life. that. I've got the books here. I've oh, got, really? I've got Meatloaf? No, I've got the books of, you know, A Sailor's Jolly Dance and, and oh, things right, like that, your, that, yeah, your right. grade two examination pieces oh, with lots of pencil marks all over them. Right. It's impressive. <laughs> but, but just to get to the other end of this, I was once incredibly impressed by your musicianship you asked me to go and sing in a chorus of a a million dead song a million dead song in the battery studios which is actually where we recorded this album as well oh great it was wonderful you couldn't see the i always remember it you couldn't see the floor for bits of wire and amps and things and there were six of us you wanted us to sing a chorus yeah and you sat on an amp and we all stood there looking nervous with earphones on and you described the chorus as going from F sharp major to E minor to B flat something with a risen seventh. And I thought, good gracious me, there's more musical knowledge here than yeah. I'd ever imagined. Yeah. I was incredibly I do. Impressed. I remember being, well, it was a gospel harmony we were trying to yeah. get, so you have to arrange it in. But you had a very technical fifth. description of what yeah. you wanted us to do, and I didn't think that you had. But I can't, I can't read musical notation written down, but I no. understand the theory better. <laughs> A perfect wife, Nanny Doss. Yes, Nanny Doss, American. Serial killer. She must have been a really weird person. Yeah, well, I mean, the, one of the motivation for writing this song sort of came in part because I didn't, I, it was towards the end of the writing period and I realised that I was in danger of writing a record that was all about how wonderful all the people that I was writing about were. That felt one-dimensional to me. But they and, weren't all wonderful at all. <laughs> That's what I said at the beginning, and I was wondering whether I should be upset or impressed to being included well, as I, uh, one amongst all of these. Well, you're clearly the pinnacle, Mark. <laughs> there we go. How did you research her? Because uh, uh, Wikipedia. <laughs> to start with, to start with, what you were looking for somebody? I who, was googling female serial killers. You so you started with serial killers? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Serial killing is traditionally kind of regarded as a more male activity, I would say. Very unusual to have a woman. Well, yeah, not as unusual as you think, actually. Did you find a lot? There's of loads of them. There's loads? There's loads. Yeah, I mean, they tend to be less kind of dramatic or gruesome, I suppose might be the word. They're not quite as sort of like horror show in terms of what they do. They tend to be poisoners and smotherers. Well, because she quietly got on and killed four husbands. How did she kill them? Poison. So she poisoned them, but the thing was she she answered lonely hearts columns in the newspaper. She was very unhappy. I mean, obviously she was looking for love well, in her... Well, she was obsessed with penny romance novels, like, you know, real cheap, mm-hmm. trashy romance novels. And she sort of, I think, 
was kind of simple enough to regard that as a possible reality. And every time she got married, it wasn't like it was in the book. So she'd quietly dispose of them and get rid of them and then move on and find somebody else from Lonely Hearts column. And when she went to prison, because she did get busted, she continued to answer Lonely Hearts column adverts from prison until she smoked herself to death. It's actually a very, very sad story. It is. One. but uh, well, And there's an interesting uh, angle here, which is that it, I think about four of the songs on the record are written from the first-person perspective. Oh, As I in, haven't been a perfect wife. Yeah, and I'm a man Absolutely. singing that line, and this is a controversial point politically for some people. How do you feel about it? It doesn't bother me at all, and actually you've got inside the person to write the song. And and, uh, no, and in writing few. the song, I, on my notes here in front of me, I've got nice metallic accompaniment in the interludes. It's, it's a, it's a synthesiser, but we called it the doorbell. Because it goes bing bong, bing bong, like that. Yeah. Um, that was so Catherine who produced it. That was, this was a song she made. Originally, I was just going to finger pick the song and have no accompaniment at all. And then Holly, who played drums, set up a drum kit made out of a bunch of trash, essentially like empty cases and a broken bit of metal. Um, right. And so the drums sound quite weird. And then we just put yeah. kind of lots of weird little sounding. I think the theme was broken instruments. To reflect the broken person. I guess, yeah. Yes. Oh, that's all deeply yeah. symbolic. Isn't it? Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so moving on. The next song to talk about is Silent Key. On the 28th of January 1986, there was the Challenger Space Shuttle disaster, which I have a vague memory of seeing or it being shown at school or certainly we were aware of it. Well, I can remember seeing it on the news. This rocket went up, it curved to the right, and then there was this huge explosion. And yeah. realising that there were people on board, it, but, was, so it was horrendous. It was it was awful, but Chris McAuliffe was a primary school teacher mm. who was put on board the space programme to interest the children of the world in spacecraft. Because she was going to give some lessons from space. Yeah, and she was. it was just trying to get the youth... With interested in, oh, is, in isn't youth interested youth. enough? Youth interested enough in space travel anyway? Not in 1986, apparently. I think uh, that I think surprises it, me. I thought that they would. Was be I very. into space at that point in time? You, I don't think you ever were particularly. Oh, okay. Don't I was into dinosaurs and crocodiles. Really? <laughs> got the crocodile outside. <laughs> Francis um, took a plastic crocodile about three feet long to school with him. Do you remember I that? I do remember that vaguely. Yeah, it's outside. My goodness. Um, yeah, anyway, anyway, so she was going to teach science from yeah. space, which is a wonderful idea. Yeah. And, and in 19... Where are we? 1986. That was going to be possible. So I was four. Well, maybe that's why you don't remember it. But this is the thing. I can sort of remember remembering it, if you know what I mean. Yeah. It's, it's right on the cusp of my... Proper memory. Conscious remembering. Yeah, exactly. So, But it's certainly, it was an event that I can sort of recall being aware of when I was a kid. And the song is A Flight of Fancy. It's about me picking up her final transmission as a four-year-old ham radio. Is that fiction? That is fiction. Does that explain why my Wikipedia researches... What (laughs) Your your implication here is, is that after the rocket exploded, that there was a period of time where she was still alive and nobody knew it except this radio ham. Who was in, four in who Hampshire. Was four in Hampshire. And I've been taking this literally. I've been really, <laughs> really puzzled by this right. song and no, I'm actually rather upset by okay, it. Okay, no, it's not true. Um, but the, the thing is, the crew did survive and they died on impact. However, they were not conscious. What, they survived on impact back with Earth. Yes. So their capsule didn't actually explode itself. No, it didn't. So they survived for two minutes and 45 seconds. That is horrendous. It is horrendous. And that was kind of the point of launching off for writing a song. And hopefully in a way that's not exploitative, but it's it's sort of that, you know, art can deal with difficult subjects and it seemed like a thing that one could write about. Uh, but I was not operating a ham radio out of the attic when I was four. 
You might have been. You spent a lot of your life in the attic. I did. I knocked down. A, I tried to knock down a wall. In anger, you took a. Did you have a hammer? It was a plastic hammer. A plastic hammer, and because it was a very old house, that wall at the top was made of lath and plaster. And, and I, I remember up. going up and being horrified to find that you'd made a hole about what eighteen inches by. Yeah, I'd just been hitting the wall with a hammer to get my anger plaster out. Plaster all over the floor. <laughs> there was another time. In your bedroom, when I think you were being punished for something, you put your knee through the wall. Do you I remember, remember that? that. Beside, beside your bed, with your knee, you went <clears throat> against the wall and there was a large imprint. Really? Yes. I don't remember that at all. I think you were being punished for something that you felt was unjustified. Put my knee through the other wall. <laughs> or we were making a hole in the attic. I don't know. I don't remember well, that. Quite possibly. Um, anyway, so let, let's move on because we have yeah, to... But we just, have, oh, just sorry. You can have a compliment here because the introduction to that song is really powerful. It's full of strings. Yes. And it's. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I could listen to the, the first 10, 12 bars of that. <laughs> but damn the rest of the song. It was, it was really good. It was um, really good. So our next song that we're going to move on to is about Matahari. One of the most famous people on the record. I'm sure you'd heard of Matahari. Well, my husband, uh, Chris, immediately said, oh, yes, I knew who that was. She was a spy. Yeah. But she wasn't actually a spy, Well, it's she? still, the jury is still I mean, out. Still um, out. Still out. They still haven't unsealed some of the But she was, she was put to death for it. She was accused of being a spy, but it was yeah. after the Battle of Verdun and the, the French war effort was going really quite badly and they were on the lookout for scapegoats. And in the pre-war period, she had had amorous relations with members of both the French and German high commands. So she was fingered. She was in the right place to be... Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, um, it's, it is, there is still quite a heated historical debate as to whether or not she was actually a spy. And she'd started off out in, where, in the East Indies or something? Well, she was Dutch she, originally, she, and she and answered then, a newspaper advert to get married. And she didn't know the man? No, he was, he was a, a Scot, and um, he beat her up. Um, so she got into Malaysian dance and left him. And then she came back. And then she came back with a new name and a new dancing technique and became this sort of sensation in the fan siècle, the salons of Paris. Entertaining officer class well the people, great and the good i mean she was extremely good. famous extremely sought after and did and she sing and, did she sing and dance? no i think she just danced and there's debate about whether she was any good because the thing was nobody in paris had ever seen any malaysian dance before so it, well, no, they didn't know whether they didn't really know whether she was hitting her marks or not she probably was rather attractive and she's, sensuous in her yeah, dancing she's the original femme fatale yeah so Wow. Yeah. And why didn't she let anybody know what her name was? She did, but the point is she had shifting identities. So she was Margaret Tizella when she was born, then she was Lady MacLeod, then she was Matahari, then she was Agent H21. And the sparking off point for writing the song was that despite her being better known than most of the other people on the record, I feel like she was used to skies and tried not to be known in her own lifetime as a form of self-defence. And then right at the very, very end, who did she whisper her name to, or nobody. To the world. Or, to the world, or have you just invented that? I've just that? invented that. You've, she did. You see, it's trying, art. <laughs> it's art, but when I take things literally, I'm having to work. <laughs> I'm, you know, I've taken this as a history podcast, well, so I'm learning like okay. that, but when I'm now discovering that half of it's not true. <laughs> well, uh, she, she certainly was, she was executed without a blindfold by request. Absolutely. So. Yes. Okay. And I quite like this one was just guitar all the way through. It was, wasn't yes. Wasn't it? Which actually was rather nice. Yeah. So it was very relaxed. Very and, relaxed. And I've just yeah, I've folk, rather gentle. Should we say? Thoughtful. Thoughtful. Oh, is that is that what it says in your notes? That's what I've written. Excellent.
Dora Hand, vaudeville singer from Dodge City, who's murdered in 1978. Oh, yes, I like Dora Hand. But apart from her being a vaudeville singer, she wasn't frightfully well, and so she went off to um, Dodge City where the climate was better or yes. whatever it was, and she got shot by mistake. Yeah. Why is she famous enough to be in your gallery? Because uh, she was the most famous citizen of Dodge City in her lifetime. She was wildly, wildly popular. She's one of the only uh, performing women from the Old West whose names we even know. And indeed, she was famously in, and I only learned this when I did the podcast in Dodge City, she was allowed to sing in church in Dodge City, which at the time was really quite something. So she was. She wasn't Sister Rosetta, so right. But uh, you know, from she, a was, she was. She was a different background. Yeah, and, and, and yeah. a different point in history. But she was a, perfor- a vaudeville singer, um, and traditionally, those people wouldn't have been allowed into the church that was north of the tracks. But one Sunday, she was invited to sing, and apparently, the church was as full as it ever was. Full of cowboys. Exactly, and and there was some debate among the kind of upper classes of the town as to whether or not this should be allowed because she was not considered salubrious. Yeah, she was probably a danger to their faith or something. Yeah. yeah but massive, what, 400 cowboys followed her well, funeral it, procession? I read that in so. Dee Brown's history of Dodge City, but according to the curator of Dodge City Museum, we don't know. We don't know anything about her funeral. So this is more potted history no, but this, been was, this, was, this was taken from a history book. So by Dee Brown, who is a famous historian. But yeah, she was, you know, she was definitely a character. I mean, James Dog Kelly was the mayor of Dodge City. She was dating the mayor. They were a power couple. And then she was murdered by a cowboy who was uh, actually a trust fund cowboy was the expression we used on the podcast because his father was a Texas cattle baron. So he was used to getting away with murder. So he he wasn't trying to kill her, but he was trying to kill kill the other woman. Yeah. No, the other man. The the other man. Her actual lover. But but, and he didn't discover that he'd shot her until the following day. When he was caught by Wyatt Earp. All right, I've written great riff on the guitar after she was shot. Okay, well that's the solo. But yeah. it was brilliant. I it can, was. I loved it. Me, I let, loved it. Let me rip you can, a solo can, and see if I can play it. Is again it now. called? Is it called a riff? Uh, no. A, well, a riff is more the repeated refrain. That, so the riff in that song is. That's so it, the riff. It's the underlying. So the solo yeah. is. is not the best I've ever played that but I hadn't warmed up I hadn't warned you I, yeah. hadn't, I hadn't no it was lovely I really enjoyed that and the other thing in that song was that in the, one of the choruses you've got voice as in a harmony yes and do you know who that is I'd like to know because it's somebody who's taken my place <laughs> Well, I mean, yes. It, How it, many songs have I been the backing group for? Quite, I, I don't know. A few in a the, few pa- over in the, the years. past. And I heard well, this. I thought, who is he using now? There's a now? desperate irony to this because it's Jess. It's my fiance. So <laughs> I will have to go and meet her and discuss this. Did she get paid for it? Uh, uh, <laughs> I didn't. So okay. Well, there we go. I'm, I'm, I don't know. I don't think so. It's one of the greatest well, compliments you can have is to look at the back of a CD and have thanks from the the artist on the CD for singing by my mum. Yeah, well, it, there's it's definitely... there was really nice. There was a Million Dead song, and you played recorder on a song, on Love Iron Song, on yes. um, Front Crawl, um, and... Am I allowed to swear on um, in sure. public? I sang, I only work here because I need the fucking money. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you just have my mum swearing on podcast. Um, the, <laughs> um, the, then uh, there's, yeah, then. In Tarrant's house in Oxford, yeah, I stood in the hall the week. Yeah. while you were on about the third floor, yeah. and I had to sing at a certain moment. And because I'm rather literally musical, I'm not incredibly good at rhythm. Right. When you said, you come in there, or after that, I can tell you I was terrified, but um, I can't remember what the words were for that. I can't remember which song that was at the top of my head. Um, But there's been a few, and you introduced us at Reading. Introduced us at Reading, and your stepfather, Chris, rejoices in the fact that having introduced you to 17,000 people at Reading, he then... It was rather more than that. Was it? Oh, really? We can up the story then. It was about 40. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, okay. but Chris stood at the side of the stage and he sang Ness and Dormer. (laughs) <laughs> and he he dines out on this because right. what he says is that he sang Ness and Dormer to 40, this got yeah, better, yeah, yeah. to 40,000. It's one of his better moments. Okay, well, I'm glad to have provided that. And then he played harmonica at Wembley for us as well. Oh, boy, was that a story. That's gone down in history. What yeah. was the name of your bodyguard? Uh, Josh Burdett, who Josh, sadly is no longer with us. Who was amazing to, Isn't he? Yeah. to see. He, what, six foot six? Yeah, and about the same, again, wide. Wide, covered in metal tattoos, Chains, you name it. And you'd not met him before, had you? I had never met him before. And I sent him to go and get you. And I, we were sitting politely, as the mothers and fathers of the performers do, at the side of, of Wembley Arena. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I looked, it was dark, semi-dark. It was you during were playing, the gig, yeah. And this enormous man came and stood in front of me. With his finger, he just beckoned me <laughs> in the dark. I thought, oh, oh. I'd better do what he says. Well, I, told, he I also terrifying. told my sister, Jilly, who was sat with you, to make sure that you went with Did him. Did she know about it? She you? knew about it because I was worried that you might refuse to go. Well, he was terrifying. Anyway, I did go. You and he's, go and- he's, he kept on sort of just beckoning me on. And we went to the side, and Emily Barker was at the side of the stage. Yeah. And she said hello. And I, it still hadn't quite dawned on me. And he said, stand there. It was about <laughs> the only thing he said. And then all of a sudden, you have a wonderful way of saying, and we've got here, my mum! And the whole the whole yeah, crowd mom, went yeah. AWOL, and I was given a push. Right? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, I've got terrible jeans on. I look like some frumpy old country granny. And you said, you made me play the recorder. I'm going to make you play the harmonica. <laughs> but the best bit, so you handed it to yeah, me, yeah, yeah, and you put a, a microphone in front yeah. of me, and you said, when I say go... Go. Yeah. And when I say stop, stop. And we got to be, I can remember it now. You leapt in the air and you said stop. And I stopped. <laughs> that was one of my favourite moments we've ever had on stage. Oh, dear. It was fun. I mean, afterwards it was wonderful. Yeah. But, but sort of during and before it was. Well, I knew was, that you'd smash it because. Oh, it was great. Yeah, it was lovely. It was I fun. love doing anything like that. Good. Well, and here we are making a podcast. Speaking of, the graveyard of the outcast dead, which is in South London. It's, we've been there. Oh, really? I've been there. We oh, went right. on a Dickens walk around Southwark. Right. Um, and I'm absolutely certain that we ended yeah, up here. It's, yeah, it's, it's a on... very interesting story. I mean, this historically is a very interesting yeah. story because here we are in the Diocese of Winchester, yeah. which in those days went right up right, to, to Southwark. to the south bank of the river. To the south bank. And the... Thereby proving that South London isn't really London. It isn't. It's Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> But the bishops of Winchester employed the prostitutes, is that right? Well, they... They, 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 they gave them protection. They, they, they worked on land in, in brothels built on land that was owned by the bishop of Winchester. So and technically they, were, they... Yeah, they were known as the Winchester geese. Why geese? I didn't get that. That's a, it's a Shakespearean slang for prostitute. Okay. I don't well, know why. Well, that's a bit erudite for me. 
Um, but you, and we were, did you listen to the podcast? We did that in, in the graveyard. Yes, I did. Fun. And you had rather fascinating man who's John been Constable. resurrecting it. Yeah, and, he's, and, he's the man behind the memorial, really. And they're making a, a garden of it? There is a garden there now. Um, they've been fighting to keep it there. And there is a petition going on right now. And if anyone listening to this wants to sign the petition, please do. But it's also a Christmas song. Because? Because it's about Christmas. So it could be oh, like, because the boyfriend went down to on the Christmas grave Day. on Christmas Day. And there's sleigh bells. Oh, I don't think I... Well, I wasn't listening. Cool, yes. So it could be my Christmas number one. Right, that's a good thing, isn't it? Yes. And have you been to one of his vigils there? Not yet, because every single 23rd of the month since I found out about it, I've been busy. You've been busy and you haven't been there. But I am going down for the one on the 23rd of November, which is going to be John's last one. Because uh, he's been doing it for 25 years. So he's retired? So he's retired. Is somebody there to take it on? Um, I don't know. He sort of slightly hinted that it might be me. Um, and I was just like, I don't know if I can Well, if you've never to... been there on the 23rd so far, yeah, that's exactly. not actually going not to necessarily be very, the best idea. very successful. No, it was a really good one. Now, what I wanted to ask you was in that podcast, you said that you were passionate about history. Yeah. And I was going to ask you when that passion... St- I mean, you were brought up in a house full of books. Yeah. You were brought up with a, a father who was fairly passionate about history and read a lot. Yeah. But when did it catch you? Um, I think it mainly caught me with um, uh, Dr Connor at school, who So was, secondary. Yeah, school, yeah. I mean, he yeah. was my A-level history teacher. I got GCSE history, and then I picked history for my A-level. And the very first class, Dr Connor walked into the room I'd never met before, and he walked in, he walked up onto the desk, and he stood on his desk, and he said, why and how did the most cultured nation in Europe get taken over by champagne salesmen and chicken farmers and turned into a genocidal machine? And I said, that's a great question. Um, and uh, it's just he had this incredible sort of um, engaging manner, you know, and, and I was just hooked from that moment on. And you read history, of course, later. Yeah, so and, I did history and- of the LSE. Um, uh, well, that was another thing. I had Anita Prasmaskum, who was my um, oh, tutor there, yeah. who um, got me into studying Central and Eastern European history, um, none of which I've covered on this album. Sorry, yeah, Anita, you haven't, you again. Haven't. <laughs> that was another question when I was analysing this, why all these people are from... They're either British or American, aren't they? No, they're not. And ah. we're going to come to that. Oh, I've got it. With going. our next song. What an excellent segue that was, Mum. Uh, because the next song is uh, The Lioness, which is about Huda Sha'arawi. Oh, you're quite right. She was Egyptian. Egyptian, yes. Most definitely not uh, from uh, Europe or uh, America. Yes, this is, this is quite, quite different. Yeah, so, and this was one, I mean, I must admit, without wanting to be overly kind of calculated about it, I was at a point in writing the record where I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just writing about white people, essentially, or Americans and Europeans. And um, I was sort of asking around on, on Facebook and the like for, for suggested uh, people to write about. And um, uh, I have uh, a friend who is an Egyptian, and she said to me, oh, well, why don't you check out Huda Sha'arai? And I said, who's that? So I read up that. So if you knew anything about Egypt, you should have known about her. I think she's, she's very well known a very in Egypt. prominent yeah. Egyptian feminist. Well, and on and the she... podcast episode we did with that one, which isn't out yet uh, as we record this, um, I got to chat to her granddaughter. How wonderful. Sania Sha'arawi, who is and now... And is she also a feminist? She certainly is, lives in Cairo. Um, she was in... a very brave woman, wasn't she? Because she came out of the house, she took off her veil. Yeah. She refused to be silent. She she taught herself political philosophy. She taught herself to read at the beginning. Was she rejected that. by her family? Uh, no, the thing, two things. First of all, she was a third or fourth wife to a much older, distant cousin, I think, who was quite liberal and not all that interested in her. So he just sort of left to her own devices. And then the First World War. In Disrupted Egypt. everything. Exactly. Social mores anyway. Exactly. Yeah. So she was able to find a degree of liberation at that point. There's an interesting point here, which is that you can't just write a song about 
X, you have to have some inspiration as well. And some reason. Yeah, and some reason, but you have to have an angle into it as a writer. The example I always think of is um, Amelia Earhart, the German aviator. I wanted to write a song about her, and I couldn't find my way in lyrically to the subject and never quite did. Um, whereas with Huda Shadari, the moment of her walking off the train and taking off her face veil, that's your dramatic image, that's your yes. chorus. Yes. Do you use the word famous in any of your descriptions of these women? No, I mean, I wanted because to Because write... they're not famous. No, they're in, not. In the classical sense of not famous. They've done rather unusual things, yeah. but they're people who... I could live to the day I die, and I could maybe not have heard of, yeah. of any or many of well, them. Well, I didn't want to write songs about... Emmeline Pankhurst or Rosa Parks because, or whatever, we because we all know about those people already. I wanted it to be a method for kind of sharing lesser-known stories. To the extent that I was a bit so-so about writing about Matahari, simply because she is quite well-known already, the driving force has to be that I'm a songwriter first and foremost and, and I'm telling stories through songs. And it was just, is this going to make a good song? Is it going to have a story? Yeah. Yes. And then some of your songs are poems. Yes. And some of your songs are narratives. Yes, and I suppose it depends on what it is that you're remembering that person for. Yeah, or what the angle is that I've found to talk about them. You know, the Dora Hand song's pretty straight narrative. Yeah. Um, whereas the Nika song, for example, it's kind of an address delivered to her after she's died to tell her that she didn't waste her life, which is a different thing from yes. telling her story from top to bottom. And some are a history lesson. I mean, in a way, the graveyard of the outcast dead yeah. is, is a history lesson. Yeah. Whereas the song about Rosemary Jane is a short poem... Yes. Uh, which just comes and well, goes. It's not got any dates in it or no, too much it information. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get, to, we'll get to that one. But I'm um, talking of poetry, so the next song to talk about um, is Cassiani, uh, the hymn of Cassiani. And actually, I don't know if you knew this, the words that I've written are structurally based on her own work. Well, yes, because my comment in my notes are that you've picked up, surely, on the sort of Eastern yeah, so, well, harmonies. The, the hymn of Cassiani exists in the Greek Orthodox Church, and is it, it is... It's in the Greek Orthodox yes. Church, because I've been telling somebody this morning that there's a hymn which is still used. It, it is still used, but it's a cappella. It's not accompanied. But the melody goes... That actually is the melody that she wrote. Yeah. It's that minor... Yeah, it's, it's, exactly, yeah, changing that minor interval and then putting the naturalised seventh underneath as well. The words, if you like, to the hymn of Cassiani are all about female sin and female kind of weakness and shame in the face of the Lord and begging for forgiveness and Eve's original sin and all this kind of thing. And I took the structural layout of that and I changed it because given her actual life story, which is that she insulted the emperor with a quip that he was too dumb to understand... And she didn't want to marry him. And she didn't want to marry him. She became an abbess, but during the iconoclastic period, she kind of, like maintained artwork that would otherwise have been destroyed. She struck me as a very defiant character, so it struck me that she might have, if allowed, have said it slightly differently. So I turned the words around and tried to make them more defiant. So, Cassiani. Cassiani. No, I like that one. It was, it was a very, as I say, very Eastern sort of sound. How do you go about deciding... Right, there's a song from the Middle East, mm. effectively, and that has particular sounds. So when you're composing a tune to go with your poem or your narration, where do you begin? Sometimes you're writing about somebody who wrote jazz, so you've got a jazz yeah. bass. You've got somebody who did rock and roll, so you've got a rock and sure. roll bass. So, well, the, so the, 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 some, about a third, maybe half the songs, have that kind of musical connection between subject 
and music. Which is obvious, you must, because yeah. that's what... Right. Well, the other ones, it's more just like I had some a good riff that needed some words, and I had some words, and you put them and together. It and, and, and it And they fit, and, and then you have a song. The, the riff that forms the base of the song, The Lioness, I've had lying around forever and been trying to put it so somewhere. So sometimes it's tune that comes before words, and sometimes and, it's yeah, words that but come But quite often tune. I have a pile of one and a pile of the other, and you just try and smash them together in the middle and see what fits. Yeah, it's quite um, But it, with the Cassiano one, I had to kind of like tonally reconstitute it, because, or at least I made it a bit more normal, so you got, you've got that as a, that. So that they call me the woman who's fallen into many sins, led me by my to the burial and to the graveside I began to sing. So I put in what are actually quite in my world more rock chords, if you like, mm. more folk perhaps, um, or certainly Western tradition, let's say. To sort of contextualise yeah, it in a way that makes but sense to me. There's an overriding. Well, it's, um, so it's collaboration sort of across 1300 years. Which is, you know, if you collaborate with anyone, who do you collaborate with? <laughs> so the penultimate song on the record is Rescue Annie. Uh, did we enjoy this song? Loved it. Loved it. I did enjoy it. And I was also absolutely intrigued. You told me that Annie. Yeah. Became the model for the resuscitation masks on which people learn to CPR. do CPR. Yeah. But why? How did that come well, about? Well, the first thing to say is that this is a story that sort of treads a line between myth and history. There was a piece of art known as L'Inconnu du Seine, which was a death mask of an anonymous woman who, legend had it, had drowned herself in the Seine. And at the morgue, somebody had taken a death mask of her. In the kind of 1890s, loads and loads of people had this. It was a sort of objet d'art. It was a curio. Usually um, famous people. Not yeah, well, necessarily was, of an unknown... But no, but this, this, this particular one yeah. became very sort of popular. And then the guys who made the first CPR dummies used L'Anconu Dussain's face. Resuscitation dolls are known as Annie's to this day. Because I've used many of those in my teacher training and mm. my first aid courses and things. Usually. Yeah. Is it always the same? Well, allegedly. Class? But, it's, yeah, but I mean, it's rather intriguing. I like it. It's, yeah. Uh, well, and again, you know, this is, it, it is a history inspired and history driven and influenced record, but it's not actually strict history, this. And this is a, this is a song as a flight of fancy in its way, inspired by fascinating myth, should we say. Which results in something that we could be remembering her through every yeah. day since. I mean, I was absolutely intrigued the first time I heard that. I thought, how extraordinary that those masks could have yeah. come as a result of this poor girl. Well, it, it, um, I sort of eventually I reach a point where I sort of say that I'm not going to ask too many more questions about it because this, the story's too good. Yes, too, you don't want to spoil yes. it. Yeah. And yeah. then, okay, so now, Mother Dearest, we reach the end of the record. And the thing is, so I, I was looking for a way to finish off the album, both musically and conceptually, and... And I started writing a song that ended up being uh, about you. Um, and I wrote a song that was kind of more about my dad when I was younger that was quite an angry, negative song in its way. Um, and I thought it'd be nice to write something nice for my mum because I like my mum. Um, <laughs> uh, the thing is, I don't think that we should get too far into that today because there's personal stuff that gets covered in there and there are some slightly raw moments. And I was going to say that I've been planning on sending you a copy of the song to check that you're okay with me releasing it full stop. Um, I don't know if you remember, but I sort of not by design, but it was Mother's Day when I told you about it and told you I was going to send it to you. I'd um, forgotten that it was Mother's Day. It was Mother's Day, which, which wound my sisters up no end. What, because they, they like, thought you that I... little suck-up. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I got did the you flowers. Say, did you say... 
<laughs> I don't remember that. So you're well. You're, I think that was an out of your earshot. <laughs> um, you know, you know. Oh, I got some flowers left in the house, and I was like, I've written you a song for my new album. That's quite good. I was very nervous when you said you'd written me a song. I was. I thought. Oh, well, so heck, I was kind of nervous too. Um, but it's, it's going to be deep. Yeah. Um, it, it, I mean, I hope you're okay with me. It's a bit late now. It's, it, it's a bit late now. I mean, we don't need to get too heavy, but I find it very. Uh, I, I find I get I could get quite emotional about it. I don't know how you felt when your father left. I know how I felt, yeah. and one of the things that was terribly difficult was to talk to you and comfort you because you were hurting so much because I was hurting so of much. Course. So listening to a song like this helps me to understand a bit more about how you and your sisters coped with everything I yeah. suppose yeah well so I mean I think perhaps it is marginally cathartic yeah well and it's a tribute at the end of the day to to um fortitude to fortitude well all, all right so there's the, the first thing I thought about it the next thing I think about it is how amazing that my son can write a song about me I'm incredibly <laughs> I'm incredibly touched well, not for the first time Here's another story. <laughs> I hate your tattoos. I've often said to you I didn't make all that skin for you to cover it in ink until one day you God, lift Just you... before we get to this, can we also just mention the fact that I had my first two tattoos for five years before you saw them? Yeah, I know. That makes me yeah. feel such a... <laughs> <laughs> anyway, continue. you're not a very good mum. Lift, <laughs> lift, lift up your left... Well, so oh, it's there. Right so, I got... so I was giving you a great lecture and you quite simply lifted up your right wrist on which is tattoo. R-J-C and a heart. Well, what yeah. can I do? Well, Those being my initials. Yes. I just had to melt. And ever so, I mean, I lost the argument, didn't I? <laughs> well, I'm glad that you um, concede. Now, the other, thing in this, <laughs> the other thing in this song is that you say that for everything you did that drove me mad, I developed another grey hair. I think so, I'm doing quite well. I think well. I'm doing quite well. I think that, that clearly I didn't do that much bad stuff no, when exactly. I was a kid. exactly. There are a few bits here that are, yeah. have gone a bit silver, think, but uh, <laughs> well, on the whole, I mean, your implication is that I would be as silver white. Well, by I now. definitely had my moments when I was a teenager. You certainly did have I your moments. I was trying but, to um, kind of get to London and get to, to punk rock as fast as I could, really, for most of it. We but, didn't have too many arguments, did no, we? No, we were all right. We were all right, yeah. really. But, was, but you were trying to get out of the nest as fast as you possibly could to a world that being a very conventionally brought up and yeah. traditional sort of family, I think that our problem was that we didn't particularly understand where it was that you were going. Yeah. If only I'd known where you've got to yeah. now in those... Sure. Know, well, I mean, that's the thing. I get to speak from kind of with the benefit of hindsight at the moment and it might not have worked out that way. But it did, you know, here we are. It sort of worked out in a certain way. I mean, I suspect that I'm not quite what you were expecting when I was a kid. Absolutely not. I had you in the foreign office or being a, a politician <laughs> or a, a lawyer. A lawyer. I thought you were going right. to be a lawyer. And uh, there were times when I would meet my girlfriend's sons and they wore chinos, docksiders, nice check shirts and had brushed their hair. Oh, those nice young men. And you I had a, were... I had like a... I remember that T-shirt I had that I cut in half and safety pin back together on the seams that said, oh, if yeah. Elvis isn't dead, let's kill him. I remember that one. What about the day when the laundry at school refused to wash your shirts because of oh, what they because said of, they were? Yeah, I had the crass T-shirt that said, Jesus died for his own sins, not mine. Um, I remember not wearing that on Christmas Day once. I, I was going to and then I decided that it was a bit much. Even uh, if I didn't react, I think your father would have done. Yeah, right. Uh, or indeed my grandfather. He was very tolerant. He, he always used to say of you, 
He'll come right in the end. <laughs> I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure whether within his own terms of reference, I ever did. I I do think about that sometimes. Yes, I don't know whether yeah. you did or not. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> but it's it's you know it's gone all right. I think it's gone incredibly well. <laughs> I'm rather proud. And not many mothers have a son who caused me to do some of the things I've done with you. It's absolutely brilliant. I love In- it. Including a podcast episode. Including a podcast episode. Rosemary Jane was the first out of bed every morning the same But there's mouths to be fed With the money she gets From a man who is dead to himself And dead to everyone else My sisters and I We're always too young to remember the line about holding your tongue While the grown folks were talking But the silence began long ago For Rosemary Jane Sweet Rosemary Jane It's Mothering Sunday And the headlines should say That we haven't forgotten The remarkable way that you took all that pain on your shoulders And put it away Rosemary Jane When I think of the things you had to endure We were young, we were callous Headstrong and unsure You guided us gently To the right path, whether loved or ignored Rosemary Jane I know I gave you a grey hair Every time I messed up Each one a silver reminder That my mistakes add up Through every one of my unforced errors Every slip You never gave up Sweet Rosemary Jane It's mother And the headlines should say that we haven't forgotten The remarkable way that you took all that pain on your shoulders And put it away, Rosemary Jane Sweet Rosemary Jane
Jane So there it is, ladies and gentlemen. You've now heard the uh, mellifluous tones of my mum at great length and got to know her a little bit, I hope. Um, she certainly turned the tables on me in that interview. But it was lots and lots of fun, and I'd like to thank my mum for being part of it. That, my friends, is the last episode of Tales from No Man's Land, and that's a great sadness to say that out loud. It's been a wonderful experience making the podcast. The response from it has been amazing. Um, I'm going to be setting up a page on my website to list sources and further reading and other information that I might collect as time goes by so that this can continue to be a project of active history and historiography and learning. There's been a blog that was done by some fans called Woe Fans Land. Great pun, guys. But that was people writing down blog entries on their favourite unknown female historical figures and I've been posting that out online as well. So the series remains. You can go back and listen to it at your leisure. We might get around to doing some more in the future. I certainly hope so. But in the meantime, thank you so much for tuning in. This has been Tales from No Man's Land. This episode of Tales from No Man's Land was produced by Hayley Clark. The executive producer was Peggy Sutton. Additional production work was done by Paul Smith, Steve Ackerman, Gully Lawrence Tickle, Josh Gibbs and Charlie Kaplow. Tales from No Man's Land is produced by me, Frank Turner, Extra Recordings and something else. <laughs>